I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back. Welcome in Country Roads Confidential here at earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. I am Mike Casaza. Today is, it's not D-Day, it's F-O-I-A Day, allegedly at West Virginia. State law says if you file an open records request, um, you have five days to get it back. Five days, five business days ago, we peppered the legal counsel office at WVU with some requests, as did many others, regarding the separation agreement with Vic Koenig. Vic, man, I've forgotten how to say his name all of a sudden. He's been gone that long, Chris Anderson. I've lost my mind here. Um, we are expecting something today. We're crossing our fingers, hoping we can get through this on Wednesday morning, but uh, good chance we get some information and, more importantly, some answers today. Possibly, as you well know, Chris, the, the FOIA office is underwater a little bit with requests and other affairs. I'm not sure how or why this wouldn't be at the top of their list of priorities, but they have asked for extensions in the past. And sometimes you just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, okay, you know, and you play along. But uh, I don't know. It's one of those things where you hope you get it because who knows what's in this trove of information. And then another part of it is also who knows what's in this trove of information. Could be good, could be bad. We could know soon. Yeah, I think we talked about it. I don't know if you and I talked about it on the podcast, but the uh, contract request, uh, that got a little delay. But I think typically you get the the request for a delay like three days in uh, rather than right at the deadline of the five days. So we passed that. I'm hoping that they'll get it. Um, I would assume by end of business today, Wednesday, and and we can kind of go through it. Um, we have some thoughts on what might be in there. Heard some rumors about what might be in there. Maybe more than rumors, better than rumors, better source than rumors. Um, but you don't know till you actually get to read it. And I think obviously something else you've discussed before, how much will we get to read? Uh, is it taking a while because they got to get their Sharpies out and block everything off so that we can't read anything anyway or what yeah uh i filed a request for something i don't want to take the lid off of this because it's a pretty cool story if it happens on may 2nd i still don't have it back yet i've had six requests for extension because it just takes time this isn't a very complicated request i believe i told you what it is um it's probably pretty simple but Man, when you can't go into your office and pull up a file on a contract because you don't work in the office anymore, <laughs> things are kind of different. And when you're not you know, in the same office suite as somebody to get information, it's a little bit more complicated. So consider how, how, um, how intricate, how, I don't know, proprietary, confidential some of these details in here are. And again, it may be a concert of um, courier services between one side's lawyers and another trying to figure out this can't go in please take this out please redact that it could be quite a process but um i've been told that people have seen it and it's been done they've been talking about it at dinner parties so hopefully today and again if it's not um it's going to come out eventually so we'll be here when it does happen are we, try to make are we not invited to these dinner parties 
No, that sounds like not. a dinner party I might want to go to if we're discussing that. Possibly, that'd be a cocktail party <laughs> would probably be a better one than a dinner party, considering <laughs> the content here. We'll we'll get to that stuff. I understand that um, that's not what everybody wants to talk about. It's not what a lot of people want to keep reliving here. So we'll push that to the back part of this episode. Feels like we've done a lot of that stuff lately. Um, so we don't have to. We can talk about some other things. We got little basketball, little football, little confusion. Surprisingly, as it comes to college football, but um, two developments since the last time we spoke, Chris. Additions to the roster, additions to the coaching staff. Um, Neil Brown has an answer for how they're going to delegate duties. That answer nevertheless asks some questions and also has an answer for the offensive line. But that addition also asks some questions as to when Mr. Hubbard will be eligible. Tell us about the new offensive line addition to this roster. So uh, Jaquay Hubbard, who was originally from Sharpsville, Pennsylvania, was a recruit for West Virginia in the class of 2019, uh, visited multiple times uh, for junior days, checking things out, coming up, was uh, planning on taking an official visit even, he told me, but ended up committing to UVA right before the start of his senior season. Enrolled there, played Played actually played this past year as a true freshman. Uh, appeared in a couple games, but preserved his red shirt because he didn't surpass four games. And in the spring, uh, it was it was an odd situation because Bronco Mendenhall, coach over at Virginia, said that he was no longer on the team and that he'd be going to junior college. Um, I'm told that he was still at school at UVA in the spring semester. So he wasn't going to junior college then. And uh, we heard some other reasons he might not be on the team, might have been asked to leave the team, uh, never corroborated that, so never reported it. Uh, West Virginia obviously did their due diligence on it as well, didn't see anything to be concerned about at all. And then he goes, uh, Hubbard breaks his silence in July, says he's transferring, he's entered the transfer portal, he's not going junior college. And it was, it was kind of strange when it happened because when he did it, he tagged separate people. I and mean, when you tag people on Twitter, it, it kind of alerts them that this person has sent out this tweet. And the people he tagged were like his trainer, his high school coach, um, a friend, and me. And I was like, that's odd because, um, again, this was just – I think I had, last I had spoken with him, I went back, I checked my DMs, checked my texts. Check my phone calls. Last time we spoke was September of 2018, like three days before he committed to UVA. So it wasn't hmm. like we had been keeping tight. Um, but he had selected me to tag in that, which told me, huh, I am thinking he's interested in West Virginia. And he went from there and reached out to West Virginia and went on a virtual visit, spoke with Coach Matt Moore. They talked at length about uh, his role at WVU, potential role. He can play inside or outside. He was recruited as an offensive tackle out of high school. He was ranked one of the top 50 offensive tackles in the country, um, but was moved into guard to start at UVA. So he does have some versatility, could play either. Obviously, there's a glaring hole at tackle, but it's not clear if he's going to even be eligible this fall. So I think this is more – while West Virginia was pushing and trying and, and searching and evaluating guys to add – for immediate eligibility at tackle, this seems more of a, a future move, uh, an addition for 2021 and beyond. Almost like they're at the end of the road with one idea, 
and just decided to be as smart as they could with the flexibility they have. And hey, maybe not this year, but well, that's a guy who can play. We liked him before. He likes it here. Why not do it now? Yeah, he's a good player. Uh, had a lot of potential. Uh, you know, like almost every high school offensive lineman, had some bad weight on him in in high school and used his size to just kind of overpower opponents. But the fact that he was able to break into the rotation at UVA as a true freshman, that's pretty impressive. Um, and then, you know, I would assume with that year last year at UVA, and if he ends up redshirting this year, he can better shape his body, better get it ready for the future, and then he can be ready for 2021 as a what is essentially a redshirt sophomore with three years of eligibility remaining. And that's a pretty good spot for West Virginia, Virginia to be in, to have a guy like that as just a redshirt sophomore. Two things to note, too. He told you that his 2020 status is up in the air, which means that they're probably looking for a way to get him eligible, correct? Correct, correct. And I'm told he's lost north of 100 pounds since yeah. he started, since he, I guess, first committed to Virginia. He's 320 pounds. Good for like him, said, but my I, goodness. I, I, maybe I put it politely when I said he had some bad weight. Uh, he had a lot of bad weight, but... You know, you, you got to look at the frame. You get some of that bad weight on. He's got the long arms. He's strong. He still moves his feet pretty well, especially for a guy that size. And yeah. you think, boy, I, yeah, I could do something with this if you're an offensive line coach. Yeah, I mean, and we're not talking a long amount of time for a lot of weight, too. So good for him. Seems like there's some dedication to the craft and uh, detoured right now. We'll see when he's available and eligible to play. But listen, man, you add high three-star players to positions in need. Um that's, that's just kind of what you have to do. And if you borrow from another class, you can do that when a guy has multiple years left. That'll work. Um, less intriguing now that they have an answer, but still something that is kind of worth watching. New defensive staffing assignments. Obviously, West Virginia without a defensive coordinator. So you figure, all right, promote somebody, promote two people, share the titles. That is and is not what West Virginia did. I love it. Just, just totally counterintuitive the entire time here. But also mission aligning here because you're going to have a staff of now five assistant coaches again without a coordinator or co-coordinators um i'm okay with that i think titles can be ceremonial and, and superficial sometimes too especially in a situation like this but um what you're going to have is kind of a front half of the defense and a back half of the defense jordan leslie the defensive line coach he'll run the front half uh, jamala died the secondary coach as he's listed before and still now coaches the cornerbacks he'll oversee the backside of the defense so you kind of have coordinators even though you don't this looks strange it's probably hard to explain to recruits who want to say and you probably know this true to be true chris hey who's my coordinator who's the guy um that's going to be something that they're going to have a hard time clearly enunciating right now so in some regard it matters in some regard it doesn't i give him credit for not bowing to what the establishment suggest you have to do you have to have a coordinator you have to have a coordinator co-coordinator and they just said no we got five guys we're going to try to do one job right now i don't know if it'll work it's strange it seems like these experiments oftentimes happen at west virginia whether it's interim coaches or coaches in waiting or things like that uh i guess this is just another one to add to the chapters here but um probably the best of a bad situation but also one that welcomes Jeff Castile back in, too, who, all things considered, it's not a bad deal to get a guy like him into a situation like this. Correct me if I'm wrong. But Gladly. <laughs> my understanding is that when it comes to calling defenses, it's essentially split up into the front, what the front is going to do and what the 
back half is going to do. Now, of course, they have to kind of be um, working together. You can't. There are certain calls for the front seven that do not mesh well with other calls on the back on the back line. But isn't that how it works with typically when when you make these quote unquote defensive calls, these schemes that you're calling, you, you have one set of essentially orders for the linebackers and the defensive line and then a separate a coverage for the secondary right yeah it's not tech mobile where you're guessing the other teams play and it's not ncaa football where you're scanning through formations and you pick one where everybody knows what to do typically um you're gonna have your front's gonna do something based on the coverage and your coverage is gonna do something based on the front yeah it works together some teams don't do that some teams have um different ways of doing it i think the one that a lot of people study and admire and are probably more familiar with as you and I talk, because it's a West Virginia podcast, is what the Big 12, uh, what, what TCU does in the Big 12, where they have just totally different calls. Um, and sometimes the secondary is half and half, too. It's just strange how they do stuff. There's there's no one way to do it. So if you can get guys to do it in a way that works, again, it doesn't have to address the convention. It can be something that is totally different, but if it functions, it functions. As long as you can teach it to your players, that's fine. Um, does your defensive line have to know what your secondary is doing? Probably not. Does your secondary have to know what your what your defensive front is doing? It would help. Um, blitzing, for example, you'd like to know what alleys you're going to have to fill. You right you might have to know where the hots are coming from. Things like that. There's ways to do all that stuff. Um, I don't know enough about how they're going to do this. I don't know enough about how Vic did it before, but I just know that it's not just one thing. You're not. There's more than round holes here. And that only accept round holes. There are different shapes. There's different ways to do it. Um, that doesn't concern me. Now, who calls the plays? I don't know. But that's why you practice. You figure this stuff out, too. It's for players, but it's for coaches, too. Uh, and you find a, made a w- find a way to make it work. And, again, as long as you can get to your players, that's easy. Teach the five coaches how to do it. Piece of cake. And once you get that, teach players how to do it. Not a big deal to me. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a concern either. you got a lot of experienced coaches back there. It's not like you're – breaking anybody in even like i said uh the, the new guys jeff coons and um dante Wright. well i guess jeff castile too but all those guys have years and years and years of experience coaching defenses coaching multiple spots on the defense and, and multiple high level teams so i it, it shouldn't be a concern two triumphs for west virginia here and i'm not just doing this because i want to like get back in the inner circle of the information here but um, West Virginia is, is kind of new to the analyst game. Only a couple years now. I think Dana's last two years, and now this will be the second year for Neil. So really just three-plus years. And they've already broken the glass and gotten a former defensive coordinator, highly successful, who's just there waiting for him. And he's not as indoctrinated into the WVU ways as to find a 2020. Um but if Jeff Castile doesn't know how to acquiesce right now, I don't know who is. That guy's going to put his blinders on and is just going to go to work, and he's not going to deal with any of the BS or the ancillary stuff right now. So that's pretty cool. And, again, that's why you do analysts. You know, sometimes you prepare guys and you give them a boost for their future in coaching, and sometimes you just keep guys on ice in case you need them, and you say, hey, go get me the Duke, and here comes Jeff Castile out of the bullpen to help you out. So that's cool. The other thing is, too, man, I got a lot of criticism and a lot of goofs when I wrote this upon Brown putting together his first staff. But, like, all of his coaches – initially it seemed like, or a lot of his coaches had done different things. They coached different positions. And I think, again, this kind of goes to the, the conventions of college football, but you think 
you want to get someone who's coach quarterbacks to coach quarterbacks. You want to get someone who's coach defensive lineman to coach defensive lineman. Sure, that's fine. But like in situations like this, and for example, Dante Wright, you hire a guy to coach linebackers who's coached safeties before. He knows how to deal with linebackers. He's coached safeties. But you put him in charge of the inside linebackers here, and you're like, oh, whatever. But in the future, if you need a safeties coach and the guy that you really want to hire happens to know inside linebackers best, that's the perfect hire for you. He's a graduate. He's a really hot shot recruiter. Kids love him. But, man, we can't hire him because we have an inside linebackers coach. You don't want to be confined by your assistant coach's resumes. You want to actually be liberated by your assistant coach's resume. So if you can move your current inside linebackers coach to safeties and you can bring in the hot shot inside linebackers coach, then you succeeded. So I think there's there's a lot of benefit to having assistant coaches who know a whole lot about football. I get that. But also who can move around. It helps your staff out in a whole bunch of situations here. And imagine a situation that's different than this. You know, if you had to go out and hire somebody in a regular recruiting, a regular hiring cycle, you know, you could consider things like recruiting position, where he's from, who he's coached, all that stuff. Is he familiar with junior colleges? Is he familiar with the conference? Um, sometimes in a situation like this, you don't have that flexibility and Imagine if, like, you had to make Jeff Castile coach safeties because Dante Wright didn't know how to do it. Could Castile do it? Yeah. He spent almost his entire career coaching linebackers, though. It wouldn't be perfect. So the analyst thing, unusual circumstances, but it paid off. And just the, the general ability of Brown to, I guess, land and develop coaches who have a whole bunch of different positional possibilities on the resume, unwittingly, it comes in handy here. I kind of like that. Is this your roundabout way of – predicting that uh, Jamila Dye will be running backs coach next year? I mean, that's that a guy, he, yeah, not even another position, another side of the ball too, yeah. right? So he's done that before. And again, like their quarterbacks coach and their offensive line coach have really only ever done that. I'm okay with that. Like that's the two positions I think you can accept a specialization. But look at Trickett. That's a, a cornerback or a quarterbacks coach who's been an offensive coordinator who's coaching inside receivers and tight ends right now. If something happens on offense in the next couple of years – you don't have to go out and hire somebody and break him in just to fit one spot. For example, you could just say, hey, we need a quarterback's coach. Can you do it? And Trick would be like, yeah, I can do it. And you wouldn't have to worry about it. I just It, it pays off. And again, if they need a running back's coach, Mr. Adai is right there if they need to, right? Of course, he's the co-coordinator on defense right now, so I don't know how he's going to coach cornerbacks and running backs in the back half of the defense. But you kind of get the idea. Like, There's a whole bunch of ways to do this. It's always nice. I think a lot of people, when Alabama, I guess, was – not the first, but really the one that took it to the next level with these analysts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was the perk of having all the money and the winning is that you could talk these big time coaches into being analysts and they would kind of just be there in the background to help out, obviously, as an analyst, because the analysts are extremely helpful for those who uh, aren't familiar. They do a ton of work. And but then also, if you need them. They can come right in and fill in a spot, just like you mentioned, just like with Jeff Castile. And even if you don't, it sets them up for the future because it preps them for their next job. So they're they're willing to take those. It's not like some demotion or anything. It is a nice spot for a lot of coaches to go. What do you think about recruiting implications here? Never mind, like, they have to deal with the big stuff and, like, why are you here? I don't know you. But, like, Castile, for whatever reason, has um, – uh, a smudge, I guess, among the fans about recruiting. I don't know. But also, who can recruit right now, right? It's going to be kind of a level playing field, but to put him in different parts of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, that he knows, are you at all concerned about his work or what West Virginia may have to sacrifice 
Um, or is he perhaps more active, more capable than Vic was? Vic didn't do a whole lot of recruiting. It, that, that's where I was going with this. Was Jeff Castillo not exactly known as like some super recruiter? I have not heard much about him being bad. And he was at West Virginia for you know the first, what, five or six years I was on this job. He was there. So I, I'm familiar with him. I'm familiar with his work. I'm familiar with who he recruited. I don't recall him being a bad recruiter. Uh, I don't recall him being, like like I said, a super recruiter. But, I mean, Vic was not much of a recruiter at all. He was uh, very rarely uh, got in touch with kids, was very rarely the first point of contact for recruits, uh, mostly came in like secondary, like a lot of coordinators. So this is not a knock on Vic. This is, this is what coordinators typically do. They are the guys that come in second and help try to close the deal, help explain the tech, uh, the technical aspects of the defense or how the kid might fit into this scheme. So he wasn't some big part of the recruiting pitch by West Virginia at any point over the last year and a half, two years since he's been here. So you're not losing much on that front. So even if you want to say that Castile is not bringing bunch at worst, you're even uh, to where you were before. It's a pretty good story you can tell, too. It's a lot better than the story that's out there right now about the coaching staff, right? Yeah. Like, if you get Castile in and, hey, you know, listen, this head coach, you know, he, he's a redeemer. Look at my story. Uh, he gave me a chance. I'm back in West Virginia. I love it here. You know, I'm doing the job, and the five of us are on a mission this year. And changes the talking points. Again, it, it takes some artistry to do that, but you can do it. Um, moving on. Scheduling is just a gigantic question mark. Some developments, though, here. What do we think about headlines in the past? I don't know, 24, 36 hours. Uh, I think my favorite little uh, push from a bunch of people right now is just the coincidence that West Virginia and Maryland's game got canceled. And then yesterday, was I think it was yesterday or the day before, that Pitt and Richmond's game got canceled. Same weekend. That, I mean, we know that they can play. Uh, they're not too far from each other. It makes a lot of sense, and and there's some flexibility here too, especially with that week zero change that opens things up. You could move it there. You could play Pitt that September 19th weekend and move Eastern Kentucky to week zero so that you get a game in early and leave September 12th open uh, for after the Labor Day weekend game, whichever game that ends up being, Florida State, UVA, kind of all depends on um, how that game shapes up, how who's allowed to play. And when it is, because uh, there's obviously we've talked about how it could be moved a day or two. And if it does, that gives it some flexibility if you have a bye week after that, too. I, uh, I've, I've not spent a lot of time barking up the scheduling tree lately, just briefly on Tuesday. And someone told me that they have not even heard that. And they, they would be uh, very no. surprised if, if Pitt was interested in that, which means two things. Pitt probably isn't, is interested in it. It's going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, do you want to schedule power fives right now when you're trying to make – you have a chance to bank wins and you have a chance to um, be a little bit more accommodating to yourself when it's going to be a hard this year to be normal. And if you're, if you're making things harder, I'm not sure that's a great idea. That's one of those things that AD and a head coach have to have an honest conversation about with each other too. Let me ask you this. Would mm -hmm. you do that without fans? Because the big – benefit of that game is like man the crowd be fired up college football's back could be a cool game to have bring back the backyard brawl first time in many many years but if there's nobody in the stands or even if there's only like 33 or 50 percent would you do it is it worth it 
I don't know if it's worth it. I mean, financially speaking, I don't know if it's worth it. So what other reasons are you looking at? Is it, is it a guaranteed win? Uh, I'm not too familiar with, with Pitt's um, team this year, but I mean, like I said, as somebody who covers sports, as somebody who likes to watch sports, I want to see him do it, but I can understand why there'd be hesitation inside the athletic department. Both. I mean, either one of them, if you have it, is it like, Pitt, do you want to come here and play a road game? Well, you don't have to. You're losing a home game. You want to come here and play a road game? Probably not. Right. I don't know how the ACC is going to do the schedule. They may be able to redeem, reward people like Pitt and get more home games. Maybe they got a homer against somebody that they hadn't thought of. Um, if West Virginia, you, you don't want to go on the road. Even though you lost a home game, you don't want to go on the road. Um, and you want to get a home game, man, it'd be something to be appealing to fans. But what good is that if there's no one there? The other part about this is, too, you know, ideally – some point in the future, we're going to be back to normal, right? Um, we'll have 100% of the fans in the stands. But Pitt is supposed to come to West Virginia in 2020. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. 2023, right? Yeah. yeah. 22 and 24 road games. I'm pretty sure. I'm positive, actually. Pitt is 23. It's a long way from now. But, like, do you think that playing the home game again against them this year with no fans or limited fans, that takes some of the starch out of the return of the series a year earlier, 2022? But also the first home game, West Virginia, is a year later, and that's suddenly not as new or as cool if you force one on the schedule this year. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, because that – I mean, but are you ever going to get, you know, less than capacity for a WVU pit game at WVU? Good point. That's that's the right answer there, too. Like, you're, you're going to draw no matter what here. But And, again, does it hurt TV – that's a long time from now, too. So I, I think he could do it. But, boy, I just wonder if it's the best idea for either school right now, too. Um, and then like, the week zero thing is cool, except that I don't – I've been told that West Virginia hasn't really looked too much into it right now and just kind of waiting on different things. There are different models that may include a, a week zero. But, again, if you start week zero, you can start practicing on Friday. You almost have to start practicing on Friday. I don't see any movement toward that. So that would be a surprise. Not impossible, but a surprise. Um, and then – Suddenly yesterday, the Big 12's commissioner says, in the wake of Iowa State scheduling a home game against Ball State from the group of five, which is just kind of against the grain of a couple of different ideas, but that happened, which means no one told anybody in the Big 12, hey, don't schedule non-conference games. But the commissioner says, we're looking to play conference only, 10 or 11 games starting a week zero going to December 12th. That's 16 weeks, so that's a lot of space to do it. Uh, this just seems to me they have a whole bunch of plates spinning right now. They have no idea when or how to stop them. The Big 12 has a bunch of plates. Every other conference has a bunch of plates. And they're all just smashing them at each other because no one's working together. So it's pretty fantastic. I love it. I've attempted to untangle this ball here and put the piece together. The story up here already this morning. If you want to go read it, it's it's very confusing. Um, and then I'm the one in charge of writing it, so it's even more confusing probably, but it's just it, you get spun around so many different directions trying to figure out when to start, who to play, if you move this team here, what are the side effects. Um, and, again, you're not getting a lot of immediate guidance here where the clock is kind of ticking. Again, Friday is something of a deadline, too. You're not playing. I don't think you're playing a week zero if you don't have an opponent but before the end of the weekend. It's just You're losing four or five days of practice, and that's just that's premium right now is practice time. So, oh, well. All right, we have our big topic. That we said we put off to the end, but you also have a, a good conversation piece that maybe people want to listen to and consider before they press stop. 
basketball related. What do you have? <laughs> yeah, just a, a real quick here because I thought some you know somebody asked it. I think we we have this discussion every year, and it's been I don't want to see an issue, but it's certainly been something. It's been something the last couple of years. Who is the go-to guy on offense for West Virginia hoops this season? Like I'm talking, you need a bucket. It is a tie game, 15 seconds left, you know, so you can set up a play. Who are you going to, and what are you doing? Because my first thought was, oh God, is it going to be everyone stand around and throw it to Derek Culver five feet off the post again? Because that that doesn't work very well. Uh, we, we see where Derek Culver does well. And he, he's a very good offensive player, but he has to get it in certain spots. Um, but which way are you going? And do you need to have that one guy? Well, the answer you're going to get if you ask that question is we don't have one. That's the beauty of our team. It could be anybody. You know, is it the beauty, the though? No, it's not. Right. Um, because, again, if, if five guys know what's going to happen – and it involves one person, I think you're more likely to succeed than if five guys know what's going to happen and it involves five people. I just think that's a better formula for me. Um, we're probably going to agree on the answer here. Do you want to eliminate some people first? Um, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but Gabe is out. Correct. Gabe Osaboyan is out. Culver's out, too. <laughs> okay, Col- good. Culver's never, Culver's never shot 50% from the floor, and his free throw shooting really troubles me too so i don't i don't think that's a go-to guy he may get better but he'd have to prove that to me across time and probably have to make a couple game winners or a couple clutch baskets now he did that a little bit last year and he was like their go-to free throw guy down the stretch he ended up shooting 51 percent from the foul line so i don't really believe in that um i wouldn't do that if we're sticking in the post shiva is really interesting because he's gonna get fouled if he gets on the block or if he gets going toward the basket and he's also a guy who can get a second shot if he misses and maybe either get it in or get the rebound and get fouled or get a second shot. That's a possibility there too. And also that seems like it seems like the next part of his game. And, and if he does something where he can hit uh, a jumper, I'm not saying he would do that in the clutch, but it's a little bit more dangerous if he can give you that triple threat. And he's a 70% shooter. So 55 from the floor, 70% from the line. I can see that jumping up there. I'm just reluctant to put the game on the line in the hands of a front court player. That's just me. What do you think? I agree. I mean, I have, I'm trying to think of how I can pin it to one person. I mean, I have an idea of how I'd set up the final play and who would be on the court. Um, but man, cause, cause see, here's, here's the issue with me for last year. And it sounds crazy. Cause I don't know if this guy would have been in the top three for a lot of people, maybe not top five or, but Jermaine Haley would have been my answer last year. That's your guy. That, that's my guy. I, I'm a Jermaine Haley homer and have been um, for a while. And he did it once. He did what the reason why I like the idea of Jermaine Haley, he did it that one time. Was it Kansas where he hit the game-winning the mm-hmm. game winning drive uh, from the wing? And, and that's what I was looking for. So I'm trying to think of who can do that again. And I think I'd try to set up almost like a, a, a two-man game where I'd have McBride driving to the basket from the top. I'd have one big man or who would I have? Yeah, I guess I'd have, I mean, maybe this is crazy. I'd have Gabe on the floor, I guess, or some, no, I'd have a, I'd have a shooting guard, maybe McNeil. I need a bigger shooter 
um, out there setting a pick at the top of the top of the key, giving McBride an opportunity to drive to the basket. And then I have two other shooters in the two corners, keeping everybody spread. That's four. And then the fifth would be Oscar Shibway with his back to the baseline in the short corner so that he is there ready to get the ball if his man goes up to help on McBride. And then he can get it and just just uh, power dribble straight up to the rim. Or he's there to get the rebound if McBride pulls up for a jumper or drives for a layup and misses it. I, I think that's my ideal final play with the current roster and what we know about him. Yeah, I think if you went NBA jam rules and you only put two people on the field, on the court, you'd have McBride and Sheboy for that, that purpose, right? Yeah. That might be the better conversation if you had to play NBA jam with this roster. <laughs> oh, my God. Did we just ruin a podcast episode? Yeah, you're getting there. Uh, but McBride did it last year. They gave him the ball against – it didn't work, but against St. John's. Uh, it did work against Ohio State. It did work against – oh, man, who was not the Cancun Classic where he went nutty in the second half of that was game? It was it Wichita State? Or not Northern Iowa, State. I believe. Northern right? Iowa, yeah. Yeah, so like a couple times they did last year. I'm just – I mean, I think he kind of hit a, a bit of a wall, and, and teams scattered him and understood him better and took away his offense later in the season. But uh, I'm confident in him in the second season. That That's fine with me. That would be my guy. The other thing is, who would be your shooter? Because if you're going to space and you're going to drive, McBride can give you some one-on-one stuff. He has an array of pull-up stuff. He loves the free throw line extended. We understand the benefit of a four-slash-five near the basket. Maybe another guy out there screening. Um, you got to have somebody who's going to pull defenders away. And let's just say you only have room for one. Who's your shooter here? Ooh. I would I would lean McNeil. I think McNeil hey. didn't have a great shooting season but he was pretty good at creating his shots. And I'm a big fan of Taz Sherman offense in the same regard. I just felt like McNeil had a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more of a way to adapt to the situation and create his own space. And if you know the clock's running down and all of a sudden hot potato finds his way to McNeil and you got to get one up or you go to overtime or you go home with a loss, I, I kind of feel like he's got a good set, a good skill set to you know, step or shake loose and give himself an open look. I like it too. That's that's the reason I mentioned him first. I think he's again he's got some decent size to him, some bulk, and and he shoots at the top of his jump. A lot of a lot of guys yeah. who are good shooters are standstill guys, and they stand still and they shoot. But he elevates and shoots, so I think he can get over and and make some shots that other guys might not be able to make. Again, I like Sherman in the same regard. I just like McNeil a little bit better. If I had to pick one of the two. That would be my guy. And I'm, again, I really like Sherman's one-on-one or one-on game skills. What I mean by one-on game is like he's the guy with the ball and the game is in the line or the game is in a certain situation. You need someone to do something. That would be him. Uh, Chris, big problem. Two people we didn't mention are probably the two most important people if you ask the coaches to the team. That would mm-hmm. be Jordan McCabe and Evan Matthews. That's the first time we said their name. And I would, I might have McCabe on the floor. I, I He's a jump shooter to be honest, and a facilitator on offense. I'm not really asking him to take the last shot. And Matthews, I don't know. I just don't know what to expect from Matthews. I really don't. I mean, I I like him, but I'm also aware of what happened during his sophomore season, and I just don't know yet about him. Uh, Give me Spanish Emmett Matthews, and and he's in for me. But I – I don't even have him in that that play that I discussed where I said I got, you know – Miles McBride dribbling the ball, Oscar in the short corner, and Sean McNeil setting the screen up top and then floating to the top of the key for a three. The two guys I have in the corner, I, I don't have Emma Matthews either. I have McCabe and Taz Sherman. 
And that's that's my five for a final play to try to get try to get a basket if you have last shot uh, and not worrying about defense. That's where I'm going right there. You gonna play a game? Go. I'm gonna read you freshman year and sophomore year stats for Emmett Matthews. You tell me which number is the sophomore year. Okay. Go. Minutes per game, 16.4 or 21.3. Which is the sophomore year number? I think it's 21.3. Correct. Field goal percentage, 39.1, Hmm. Uh, I guess 39.1. That is the sophomore year percentage. Three-point percentage, 24.1. 30.1. 24. No, that's his freshman percentage. Wow. Free throw percentage, 62.2, 80.9. I'm going to say 62. I think I, th- I thought he was lower across the board, so 62.2. Oh, yeah. Ten fewer makes in two fewer attempts. So, yeah, not great from the line. Um, assists, 16, 20. Uh, I'm going to say 20 just because he, he played more minutes. 16. And that's mm-hmm. the one we've made. Like, I, that's where I think he was a bit lost on offense last year. Confidence, whatever. But he's too good. Like, he's he's tall. He can dribble. He's got good handles. He's left-handed. He can do stuff. I, I was stunned when I saw that. Not even two assists per game. Or not even half an assist per game for a guy like that who's on the floor. More than half the game, that surprised me. So, yeah, uh, just very deceiving. You know, people think that he was pretty good his freshman year. He wasn't. He was good toward the end, and when they needed him, he was there to step into the role and get better, and that is an accomplishment for him. I don't mean to say that he did not have a good year. Relative to his situation, fine freshman year. Sophomore year is a step back. I just don't I don't know. I have confidence in his, his skills. If you've ever talked to him, really bright kid who's, you know, I think bothered because he gets bothered. You know, his skill and his, his game and his talent, his size, they're all at a level above the way he played last year, and the fact that, like, his play came down. I think that got in his head, and that's probably a guy who's not used to that before. So sometimes people are bothered because they're bothered. They're not used to it. Um, ideally, he knows how to handle that better. He knows how to spot a slump and move it to the side and get your way out of it. But if he ends up, um, again, one more freshman, sophomore year, if he ends up going from 5.4 to 6.3, not even a point-per-game improvement, if he goes to 7.2 next year, I don't know. That feels like a guy who's got to add, like, five points per game, maybe even double his scoring if this team is going to – I don't know, evolve to a final four contender level. Is that too fair? Does he have to get you double-digit points per game for this team to go where it wants to go? Uh, I don't know about double digits, but he has to be, he has to contribute and be more efficient. Because uh, like you said, he has all the tools to be a guy that can, at any given point, score 20 points or grab 10 rebounds or dish out five assists. He should be. He has the skill set to do all of those things. Now, to ask him to do all those things all the time—that's a bit much. It's a bit much for anybody. But he should be somebody that you know. You can look at the end of the year, and he's shooting, say, forty-five to fifty percent from the floor, thirty-five to forty percent from three, seventy percent from the free throw line, and averaging about ten points a game, four or five rebounds, and and a couple of like two assists, like and a steal like you need to, he need, he is a well-rounded player that should play like one. 
let's end with a round, a well-rounded conversation on our email, maybe today, maybe tomorrow too. Um, I've, I'm not going to say everything I've requested, but one of the things, two of the things I have requested, uh, one is just the separation agreement, which is just exactly how much they're going to pay the people and what type of um, protections one side has against the other. So basically, I can't talk bad about you. You can't talk bad about me. If, if one of them does, this is breached and you're do all your money or do no money, something like that. Be curious to see if they put anything mitigating in there or anything that keeps Vic from getting another job. So if they say you can't work for 19 months while we're paying you, or they say you can't go to a Big 12 team, or they say if you go get another job, we owe you the difference between what you're making and what you're owed. I don't expect that. I think that'd be unfair, but maybe that's the stuff you look out for there. The bigger one is that um, the investigation, the final report, that should be made available. Um, I think we're going to get answers. I think we're going to get the exact or an inexact, but at least a more focused look at a lot of the alleged um, language that Vic used, the racial stuff I'm not sure about. We'll see. But I think the, the questions people have about what did he say, what did he mean? Um, I think that'll be cleared up a little bit. I definitely think that the religion, the religious aspect of it, the involvement that the coach had in the player's life. I think that'll give you some color. And I'm not sure that people are going to like what they hear about that. If what I hear is accurate. Um, I don't expect to see who voted in the hierarchy here of the decision-making and how they voted. And I don't expect to see anything about what I think is really important. Who was right. Carrie Martin or Neil Brown. When one says I went to my coach and we had meetings. And then one says, I didn't know about this until my player tweeted. Um, I don't expect that one to be there. Um, what do you think we'll get? What do you hope we'll get? I'm a little bit more pessimistic than you. I think they're going to try to hide behind a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of student athlete privacy, putting a lot of black marks all over everything, redacting stuff. I hope we get answers. I hope it's, it, I hope it's very clear. And I said this the day that the allegations came out. I said it again the day that they announced the, quote, mutual separation with, with Vic Koning. The the, and, I, and I put it this way on the board. When they withheld the information so far, and, you know, maybe they'll release it and it'll all clear up anyway, but one of three things happened. One, the investigation found that Kerry Martin was exactly right, that it backed up all of his claims, and Kerry Martin's getting screwed because the only information that had previously come out was two coaches refuting his claims and Vic Koning is going to get paid to go away. So it makes it look like Kerry lied, but the investigation found he told the truth. So not releasing that screws Kerry or the investigation cleared Vic. And the fact that they didn't come out and say, we found out that he's not a racist, that he's not, you know, what all the other things that were alleged against him. And that way it's not hanging over him like a scarlet letter when he, if, if he's trying to find a new job. So if they cleared him and didn't release it, it screws Vic. Or the third scenario, this investigation makes both of them look bad and everybody's just kind of hoping it not to release it and just move along. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I can't imagine. It's, it's one of those three things. It's not something else. I can't think of a, another scenario where it would be. And you know, like I said, I hope they release everything so we can get a clearer picture of what's going on because not so that I can say, well, now I know, now I feel better. It's like, no, one way or another, 
someone's kind of getting screwed by the fact that this information is being withheld. Yeah, I, I think that they, I think they're going to have to come to an outcome, though, don't you? Otherwise, this is going to keep going here. And again, like, it's, there's a difference here. You don't have to tell me what players you interviewed, but you can do a finding of what the players said. My suspicion, my hunches here is that you're going to find that a couple people had a problem with them and more people didn't. What does that mean? Do I need to know the identity of the players who did and didn't have a problem with them? No, but the tally is probably important, especially relative to the outcome. And then similar things, too, like the difference between why and how he involved himself in Martin's religion. There's a lot of context there that's up in the air. I would hope that some of that stuff is spelled out. Otherwise, why are you investigating? Like, there's there's something here that has to come out, too. I, I'll leave you with this, though. We're going to get answers, and maybe they're not what we want. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday on the board. But like, I'm looking at a quote in my office. It's a Jonathan Foster quote, um, famous journalism lecturer. If someone tells you it's raining and another person tells you it's dry, it's not your job to quote them both. It's your job to look out the effing window and find out which is true. <laughs> so we're going to open the window in our email and we're going to find this. And then someone's going to say it's raining and someone's going to say it's not raining. It's probably going to be in there. I'm going to stick my head out the window still here. This is like this is the next step. I don't think it's the end. If it's the end, awesome. I just don't expect that much transparency. All right. I, I hope you're right. I hope I hope we get as much as we can, and then like like you said, we'll figure it out, and we'll let our readers figure it out too. We'll share as much information as we can, and let the readers read into it what they will. But you know, we'll obviously have our takes too. All right. Well, Chris, we have more work to do here, I guess, but that'll be all for this time. Until next time, I am Mike Casaza, and I'm Chris Anderson. We will talk to you later. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.